has arrived the cowbell no i'm kevin goldstein and joining me making podcast history it's the first person to ever be a guest and then move into the co-host chair and joining me from what i'm sure is a much sunnier much warmer state of arizona it is the managing editor of fangrass it's meg rowley meg how are you i'm good it's 83 degrees right now it's warmer it's sunny turned a corner weather-wise in Arizona, so it is just reliably pretty nice most days. Um, so yeah, it's it. I'm good. I'm I'm tired, um, as <laughs> as I think all people who work in baseball and baseball adjacent media are this time of year. Um, but I am I am well otherwise. So yeah. So we're gonna have a a a, a spooktacular show for you. This week. I have no Halloween themed events for this show, but I just <laughs> want to say spooktacular because it's a lot of fun. Um, we'll talk about obviously the big story, the World Series. Uh, talk about some of the stories around the World Series. Um, we have a couple of things to talk about because, uh, as happens during the World Series, uh, a rare press availability from Rob Manfred. Uh, so we'll talk about his comments on the Braves and and his uh, weird little joint with Tony Clark about labor issues. Uh, our special guest. Well, maybe this is the spectacular part. This is the scary part. Our special guest will be returning uh, is Disha Thosar of the New York Daily News, who's going to talk about the Mets GM search, which is, um, I don't know if it's scary. It's more creepy, I think, would be the better <laughs> adjective for it. Um, and then we'll get into our musical guest and uh, read some of your emails and catch up with Mag Moment of Culture. And then you'll get on with your weekend if you listen to it before the weekend begins. And if not, you'll enjoy it during the weekend. We do not care when you listen to it are you ready to talk about baseball man yeah i'm ready let's go world series is going on yeah uh, t- today is thursday and it's a travel day and one day i i'll, I'll I, I do want to talk about the world of baseball travel because it's kind of amazing yeah um and uh the first two games went uh as uh i mean the most likely outcome for any two baseball games in two good teams is a split and you got that split yeah uh the the braves won game one the astros won game two i don't know if either was a great game um but but that's what happened yeah um <laughs> you know it's it, it, game two i thought was kind of more interesting the fact that the astros really I mean, max free actually pitched very well and the astros kind of dink dunked and, and error yeah. hit their way into a four-run inning to, to kind of push that one away um i think the story of this now is what has been the story of so many playoff series, uh, which is, you know, I was talking to Jay Jaffe about this. Jay and I are both old. And like when you got into a World Series, you used to like you used to literally know like the pitching matchups for games was one through seven yeah. before the thing started. And 
you know, and maybe something weird would happen. And like, you know, all of a sudden, like their ace would be trying, they tried to move up their ace and go one, four, seven with them or something like that. But you knew this pitching and, um, you know, we know tomorrow is, is game three and it's Luis Garcia and Ian Anderson and game four is TBD. Yeah. And, you know, part of that's because the Astros obviously lost Lance McCullers and their starting rotation is this kind of one that they're improving. And the Braves lost Charlie Morton in game one when he broke his leg. And so now all of a sudden, like this, these three in Atlanta seem real weird after, yeah. after Friday's game. Well, and I don't think you have to be. I don't think you have to be an old to to look at <laughs> at series like this and sort of um, bemoan the narrative void that uh, the starters not being able to either pitch predictably or um, go deep into games sort of lends itself to. I mean, we've you mentioned that neither of these games was like particularly compelling, um, and I think that part of that has to do with the length that we get in the postseason, and that isn't purely a result of um, you know the sort of parade of relievers that we get, but that certainly doesn't help matters, right? Yeah, eighteen more minutes of commercials doesn't help either. No, but you know the the commercial thing has held relatively steady um, o- over time, and I think that you know time between pitches goes up. We have all mm. these pitching changes um i think that it's been uh, i've been really impressed with sort of how brian snicker has managed his way through uh atlanta's pitching situation um i think you're right to say that like the (laughs) when you look at last night's game um you know, Max Fried probably pitched a little bit better than what his um, box score uh, line would suggest. But I think importantly, he gave them length when early on it looked like he might not um, and was sort of able to save the higher leverage arms in that bullpen for another day. Uh, and, you know, Snicker was able to deploy, you know, like Drew Smiley and Lee and all of these guys where they're not, you know, in any given moment necessarily a bad reliever, but they don't quite stack up to the Minters and the Matzix, which is still so fun to say that Matzik is like this reliable, great he's at the bullpen. Like baseball's so freaking cool. Um, so I think that um, you don't like I said you don't have to be old to to miss the predictability of a rotation that kind of lays itself out. I don't um, even know if I miss it. I I, I think this is really? fun. I kind of I kind of dig it. Like like we don't know who's going tomorrow. I kind of dig it. I, I I get excited about. It. I I thought it was. I like. You know, I like seeing how teams rise to the strategic challenge of trying to piece this stuff together, right? Um, You know, or don't, as the case may be. I think that when we look back and analyze Dave Roberts' postseason, um, you know, he had this sort of like compounding series of bad choices that just really painted him into a corner. So Mm -hmm. I like the I like the strategic part of it, and I like seeing how um, how teams understand their own guys right and how they can best use them um but i i really i don't know man like there's something really great about the the postseason ace that just goes out and shoves for seven innings and yeah you, we don't have that we don't have that you know and he he leaves the mound and you're like wow i just saw i just saw something right right we had that um, with framber in the one game against boston well, and I, I think that, you know... Um, but that's Houston, not an ace. That's a good pitcher having an ace night. Right. And like Houston's next starter, you're one of one of your favorites, like Luis Garcia's last start was incredible. But his two before that were clunkers. One of those was sort of exacerbated by injury for sure. But, um, you know, the, the number of, of starts this postseason where I am confident I will remember that performance two years from now, I don't... 
I don't know if I have many of those. And that doesn't mean that you can't have compelling baseball and that you can't have guys emerge as like improbable heroes who you who you will tell people about years from now. Like like I said, Tyler Matzik, kind of amazing. Baseball's <laughs> baseball's the best. But I do think that it creates sort of a void in the middle of the narrative that um isn't isn't always successfully papered over with um, a parade of relievers, even if those relievers end up being very good. And and there's been a lot of, of wailing and gnashing of teeth and clutching of pearls around pitching usage in the postseason. And like, this is bad for baseball. This is not what we want baseball to be. And I don't know how you feel about it, but I don't feel like this is like some sign of things to come as much as it, this is an overlapping bit of collateral damage from 2020 in the sense that everyone right. is absolutely fucking exhausted right, right. now right. and no one has anything left in the tank and and i don't think that'll be the same case in 2022 i think in the 2022 playoffs you will have i'm sure aces going you know what sounds like a long start today going seven right. you know and um and i i just i think this is just like 2020 as a whole is a weird one-off i think the 2021 postseason is in its own way kind of a weird one-off yeah, I think that's right. I think when you combine guys who not only saw dramatic increases from their workloads in 2020, but you also had a bunch of starters in this postseason who were seeing just career high innings totals, period, right? Mm -hmm. They had never pitched this much. And then they were doing that on the back of a shortened campaign. And some of them had pitched deep into October. So you have this like weird confluence of events. I don't think that um, any of the the starters who got pulled after three innings were like that that was the plan for them going into that start. If they had been effective, they would have been, you know, left in longer. I think that when you combine the the usage and injury stuff with the fact that some of these were just bad starts and like, what are you going to do? You're not going to leave the guy in there You're right. trying to win postseason games. I tend to not... I tend to not fuss too much about postseason pitcher usage and what it says about baseball at all because it's just such a strange time of year, right? Like you are, you're just managing very differently potentially than you would during the regular season. You you can't give games away. You can't say, "Oh, I'll get them next time." Like there might not be a next time for some of these guys. So, um, I, I don't, I don't tend to think that like this is representative of what pitching will look like. We definitely see some trends persist from the regular season to the postseason. It's sure. Not like, you know, pitcher, it's not like relievers. We're not going back up, to 1983. Right. Like relievers are taking a, a much larger share of just innings thrown across the game, no matter whether it's the regular season or the postseason. But there are specific sort of postseason game state stuff at play. That means I think we should, you know, just be mindful of that before we try to ascribe it to like a change in direction in the game more broadly. Because a lot of the time it's like, you know, Dave Roberts wouldn't manage like this during the regular season. Like he doesn't have to. He can just play again tomorrow, you know. Right. And and I do, you know, I don't know, this is worth someone looking into and that person's probably not me. But uh, it, is this the first World Series where by the time we got to game two, both teams had lost their best starter? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I, I mean, don't either. I, I'm I'm always tempted to say no. This isn't the first time because we've just been doing this for so goddamn long. That one feels this one. This one feels like it actually might be a possibility. But I don't. I don't have a. I don't have like a, a famous historical example in mind. I'm sure there's a <laughs> listener out there somewhere who's like, but what about? And right. yes, to you, congratulations for having a better memory. Than 1954. I right. Right. Wasn't alive then. Yeah. Not my. Not 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 how my brain works. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to talk to you about the 
coverage of the World Series on a national media level. Sure. Um, and we get the Astros. Everybody hates the Astros. I get why. Uh, everybody loves Dusty Baker. Yeah. I get why. Yeah. Um, and so it's reached this weird conflating of kind of everyone hates the Astros and everybody loves Dusty Baker. And the watching people try to strike the right balance between those things has been, and maybe I, it's just too inside baseball for me, has been very entertaining to me. Oh, sure. I Yeah. I mean, like, it's got to be, this whole thing has to be so weird for you. <laughs> <laughs> apply to any number of things mm-hmm. right um i think that this is uh it's an interesting r- neutral fan rooting interest world series because right. i i think that you're right that um a great many neutral fans look at the astros and are disinclined to support them in the world series but do have this sort of carve out for for baker um but i also think that the reaction by neutral of neutral fans to Atlanta has been largely negative too. Um, And so I think that what I've noticed people trying to do to sort of piece together a good time for themselves is like pick, pick a couple of guys who they just really like watching and sort of root for those guys and, and take the franchises out of it almost. And I, and I think that Dusty is, the main example of this uh, for Houston, certainly, like I think, you know, people who have been attuned to how he allowed himself to evolve as a manager and the the changes that he instituted to sort of course correct in areas like pitcher usage or, you know, playing younger guys where he had maybe faltered before. Like, I think that people appreciate that he has this long history and tenure in the game. Um, you know, this is a perspective that like I can only dream of having on baseball right mm-hmm. um and so I, I think that um he is he is very easy to root for and obviously came in after the science dealing stuff so he's sort of um clean from that perspective I do think that there are younger players on this team who were not in the big leagues when that all happened to right and at this point like the majority of the roster right like there's been a tremendous there's only, amount yeah, there's only four people on this from the 17 team on this roster. Right. And so I think that, um, you know, there are other sort of candidates. If you're a neutral fan and you're like, well, I, I want to, I want to be rooting for someone on, on both sides, just to, um, you know, sort of emotionally hedge. <laughs> in the event right. That- I, I think, I think one of the kind of the, one of the, the breaking points for some people is just the fact that like you hate, people hate the Ashes because they hate the players and people hate the Braves because they hate some of the things the franchises, but it's right. not the players' fault. And so they like, they're not going to hate the players for that. Right. I, and the Braves I, don't have any hateable players. Anyway, it's a very likable team in terms it's of a, personalities. It's, yeah. It's a quite likable team. Um, and, and I think that um, even, even some of their players who like, you know, Acuna is just there every game, like, mm-hmm cheering his heart out from the dugout so even um some of the popular members of that club that aren't able to play right now are sort of making their presence known um i don't know i don't think that we do a good job as fans this is true in sports and and probably true of a a number of other things like disentangling ourselves from Mm -hmm. the franchise i I understand the instinct of Houston fans to sort of double down in moments like this and have sort of an us against the world mentality. And I understand, um, you know, fans of Atlanta who don't do the chop being like, well, I'm just trying to root for these guys. Like, I'm not 
I'm not participating in this like racist charade that some of my fellows are. So I, I think it's hard to um, emotionally separate ourselves from the franchises that we come to love. And we'd probably all be well served to sort of allow in the failure with the parts of the team that we find compelling because there's no like there's no franchise in baseball that's completely morally clean and i don't say that to to downplay or disregard um you know any of the the scandals or the people who um you know find themselves hurt when they're on the wrong side of minor league pay or you know all the shady stuff that happens in the international market or any of that but i i think it is useful to remember that we were none of us able to have totally clean hands when it comes to the franchise that we decide to root for or anything and if you did anything in life where you conducted a, where you did a transaction today with any sort of company you did it with something shitty like you can't avoid this well, at some I, point right and so i think that the that maybe a more um productive posture to sort of take to the whole thing is to say look i'm going to make clear in whatever ways i can and you know i think those ways are sometimes frustratingly limited for us as like individual consumers right when that is the only means we have to express our displeasure with something it can feel you know sort of flaccid but like to say this is the stuff that i don't like and i'm going to endeavor to communicate that however i can Mm -hmm. and i'm going to make sure that I'm not deputizing the bad behavior of a different franchise against the people who root for that franchise because you're not really taking those issues seriously if you're doing that. You're like trying to dunk on, you know, you're like <laughs> equating, you're equating the, you're equating sign stealing or underpaying minor leaguers or domestic violence or whatever it is to like, you know, like a guy striking out with a basis loaded and we don't want to conflate those things right so i think that it's if we let in the stuff that isn't great and try our best to counter it and then make sure to not you know use the bad acts of other people as ammunition against fans of those other teams you can kind of find your way through in a i think a way that'll make you feel um maybe not feel better about it but like allow you to still enjoy it while also not um you know, making light of very serious stuff in the name of fandom. Because it's like we, you know, sometimes you look at Twitter and it's like, well, you see Houston fans and Atlanta fans going back and forth and they're like, well, your your guy got suspended for DV. And I'm like, we are not deputizing someone's domestic violence into like a Twitter spat, are we? Because that doesn't (laughs) suggest that we're taking the actual underlying incident as seriously as we should. Like, let's all, you know, fandom is fun and it fosters community and we have a great time and it feels so good when it works out but you know they're in much the same way that there's like other stuff at play besides money in baseball for teams and the league there should be other stuff at play for us as fans so i think finding our way to something a little more balanced would probably be useful and make twitter more pleasant which seems like a worthy goal too nowhere to go but up um yeah (laughs) do you uh do you have a rooting interest when you watch the game? Do you, is there someone you hope wins? Um, I, think I know I, we're all supposed to be neutral. I'm still asking you this question. I don't. So I should say, just in response to that, like I think that it is. I think it is perfectly possible for media members to be fans of a franchise or uh, a particular player and still like engage in objective and well reasoned 
coverage. Like, I don't think that those things are necessarily anathema to one another, if only because, like, we are all biased in some ways. And if we acknowledge those ways, we're probably doing better than pretending we don't have any bias to begin with, right? But mm-hmm. um, I... I guess it gets a little more, like, if you're a beat writer and you're a fan of the team, that can get kind of tricky, but there are still people who do that fine. Um, I, I tend, I tend to have, like, a gut check moment where, like, something will, a rally will happen, and I get, like, into it, and I'm like, I guess I'm rooting for Atlanta, you know, like, I guess I'm, I want them to win this game. And it isn't necessarily consistent over the course of a series, (laughs) right? Sometimes I'm like, oh, I just want good baseball. This is what I've learned. Or, you know, it's easy when it's a team that um, hasn't had a good deal of success. You know, I think we all, unless you were a fan of Cleveland, like I think most neutral observers pulled for the Cubs in 2016 just because it was like, surely we can, you know, be done with this bit of historical torture (laughs) that we've, that this franchise has decided to engage in. Um, I don't know how I will feel when... Uh, when Seattle is in the postseason next, whenever that ends up being. Um, I did feel a little stirring of fan feeling when the Mariners were competitive right to the end there mm-hmm. um, this year. So I don't know if that will present itself um, sort of, or assert itself m- uh, more forcefully when the, the team I grew up rooting for is back in the postseason. But um, I don't know. I, I root for like, I root for fun baseball. I, ri- I root for baseball that gives people interesting stuff to write about like that's such a boring answer from a managing editor but i it's like if it gives you a cool problem to try to figure out like that tends to go well for us that's nice we have people who do well with cool problems so um i root for that i i root for seven game world series series but i i will admit that i sometimes root for shorter series before the world series (laughs) Just, just to get a breather. Yeah, it's nice to have a day off during right. during October, which doesn't always work out. You know, we don't have any weekend days off during the, the World right. Series this year. That's when baseball gets played. Yeah. So um, selfishly, I do root for the ability to sleep a little bit because it can be in short supply during this month. But but no, I'm, I mean, I don't know. I like a lot of the players on both of these teams. So I... I was, I, I'm, it's so cool to see Eddie Rosario doing this for however long he manages to do it. Luis Garcia's last start was incredible. And, mm-hmm. you know, that like windup is rad. And yeah. And it was kind of a shame because he didn't deserve it. Cause there was all, that turned to a Twitter thing where he all of a sudden he was cheating. Like, right. it was just like, because of, because of, he's, you what? can fake velocity. Like, and the thing was, like, you know, two years, you know, his final year in the minors, he was touching 99 at times. Right. Like, it's not, it's not like this is new. I understand, like, there was a career high major league VLO, but it's not career high for him from start to finish by any Right. Stretch. And it did, it felt like we had kind of lost the thread there a little yeah, bit. Like, big I appreciate, time. um, you know, I think that this is going to be one of the consequences of what mm-hmm. happened is that there's going to... They've earned this kind of... of skepticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, 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 do you think if they win the World Series, the Houston Astros, that is, um, do you think if they win the World Series that it's somehow bad for baseball or is it just kind of like professional wrestling and, and, and for a little bit the heel's going to hold the belt? Um, I don't think that it's bad for baseball. Um I think this is a good team and, you know, as far as we know, a team that's playing clean, right? I think, um, I think they are. And, and, you know, I, 
you know, well, for all the, every time anything could happen, it's like, oh, they're still cheating. Oh, they're still cheating, uh, you know, by a certain subsection of the, of the world. And, and again, they've earned that kind of skepticism. Yeah. Um, if they are, they're certainly not doing it in any way they ever done before. Just the sense that um, what MLB has done since the investigation in terms of having right. people in video rooms and, uh, you know, right. Li- literally right outside the, the, the dugout and the clubhouse and things like that. It's not something you could pull off right now, or at least in the way you once did. If, if nothing else, I imagine that, um, how do I want to put this? Like, I tend to think that, um, we, we rely overly much on, um, on rational incentives as a way of policing bad behavior like mm-hmm. i'm a this will probably not surprise anyone who is listening to this and is familiar with like me as a person like i, I think regulation is just better like if you don't want something to happen have a rule <laughs> because um i think that that tends to be um, more effective but um i i struggle to believe that on the the eve of what i imagine will be a very substantial payday for him that Carlos Correa would risk, right? That now, I I would have thought that some of the disincentives around um, what they did in 2017 would have been strong enough to counter that too. So, like, we have to allow for the possibility that something nefarious is going on, I suppose. Um, but I I would be it would be surprising to me. I don't think that these guys have like enjoyed their reception in in away parks. No. Um now I don't think that that's likely to change anytime soon. No. Um I think but, it's going to be with them forever, I, you know. Yeah. But I also I also imagine that like if this particular group of guys, you know, at least the the holdovers from 2017 like they're not getting away with without suspensions the next time, right? Like right. I'm sure that there is um, a, a strong understanding on their part that like the the you know immunity in exchange for cooperation card, like you don't get to play that an infinite number of times. I mean, it's um, already gone, you know. Right, and so I I I hope that that understanding is sufficient um, to have a, a real chilling effect, but. Uh, I I don't know. I guess I don't I don't know that for sure. But I I suspect that 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 is enough. Like I you know we we had to deal with this sort of um, allegation on the periphery of the Giants season as well, right? Where you had a bunch of older guys who suddenly were- I still don't even understand what the I, I I know that existed and that that there was this world of um people who were convinced the Giants were cheating, but I, I don't I I never. I probably I didn't dig either. Like I never figured out like what they what they thought the actual cheating was. I think that like a a bunch of bounce backs simultaneously is you know a, a, at least a um a phenomenon yeah. that you're going to investigate to try to figure out what you can do. And like I said, like I can appreciate being a fan. You know, if we can understand the skepticism that is pointed Houston's way, I can appreciate how um, the last couple of years might make you cynical about yeah. the rule following tendencies of baseball more generally, because I think e- even the people who are um, the harshest on Houston are probably willing to admit that um, there there's probably some amount of uh, uh, boundary pushing, shall we say, on most in most big league organizations, um, mm-hmm. even if it's not to the extreme um, and to the extent that it was with with that 2017 Houston team. So I can appreciate why you would be cynical about it. Um, 
but it is, you know, and I think that that's probably the thing that has been the most um, frustrating about the aftermath of that scandal, that it did put us in a, in a state where we are inclined to believe that there is something nefarious rather than something incredible going on. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I imagine that if you're, uh, like, if you're Buster Posey, and you're seeing the reception that Houston's gotten, and you want to be in the Hall of Fame, and you, you know, your professional reputation is important to you, that might be a powerful enough disincentive for uh, shenanigans. So yeah, I don't know exactly what the what the specific yeah I just never that was supposed yeah, to be. But I have no idea. It's just like they must be was all I really saw. Yeah, and and that's that's a bummer. Like it would. I, I hope that we can get to a point where um, fans feel like the enforcement environment in the game is sufficiently strenuous that we can look at um, at moments where guys are, you know, having a great year and they're outperforming projections and they're, you know, doing something incredible and and view it first and foremost foremost through the lens of being excited and finding it compelling rather than being suspicious. And so I, you know, I hope that that is a a reality that we're able to reach and that when, you know, the league thinks about other enforcement measures, whether it's the next iteration of sticky stuff enforcement or what have you, that they they kind of understand how important that ability to be odd rather than suspicious is to fans ability to enjoy baseball so mm-hmm. you know add that to the list of things that they have to tackle this winter <laughs> <laughs> um think of things to tackle this winter uh prior to the world series that happens every year um rob manfred had press availability mm-hmm. um and uh rob's not especially good at speaking publicly no. And uh, has a long history of saying things that make her mad. And so um he was asked about the the the, the chop, which the 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 we all know what that is. Uh, yep. It happens in Braves games. Um it's not good. And he ended up kind of defending it in the weirdest of ways and I, I didn't see or hear a follow-up that kind of I just wanted someone to have, make sure he was saying what I thought he was saying. Yeah. Which was that Hey, the Guardians, after a very long time and a, and a protracted process and, and even a delay, they are going to be the Guardians next year, right? They're going to be the Cleveland Guardians. And that's a, we can all agree that's a good thing, that they are no longer Cleveland Indians, they're now the Cleveland Guardians. And it, in terms of the chop, he kind of talked about how every market's different and, and we, you know, we don't treat that. And it just sounded like he was saying it's okay in Atlanta because a lot of their fans like it and therefore it's okay. And I yeah. just... Is that what he was saying? Because I was like, is that what you're – I, I kept yeah. saying to myself, is that really what you're saying? That, well, it's okay for Atlanta because, you know, a lot of their fans like it. Yeah. Uh, I I think that that is a, a reasonable interpretation of the text. If I were still a teaching assistant and you turned <laughs> in a paper with that argument, I'd be like, yeah, that, that's defensible. That's defensible I, w- I, w- I would be late and you would not like my capitalization. <laughs> that, might be, but, you know. that, that might be true. But um, yeah, it, it, it seemed to imply that because um, fans – and again, like we could have asked him, well, what – which of the fans, right? Because I think understanding – Atlanta's fan base is sort of a monolith is probably a mistake in and of itself, but that some vocal portion of the fan base is comfortable with the chop 
And, you know, that's how they do stuff down there. And so it's fine. And obviously, like, there is a boundary at which point he would say, well, that's not okay. Like, if we were starting a new franchise today, um, there would, I'm sure, be a list of things where if the team owners came to Manfred and said, can we call our team this? He would say, no, you may not do that. That word isn't acceptable as a team name, right? I would hazard a guess that all of the um, names that invoke uh, indigenous people would be on that list, which is probably the only real test we need to know that like we have, you know, wandered away from God's love here, right? Like you're not calling a a franchise started in 2022 what Cleveland's team was called, and you're probably not calling them the Braves. Uh, And you're certainly not encouraging an in-stadium um, celebration like the chop, like you're just not doing that. I think you would have an understanding that you have to conform to um, how we treat one another or should treat one another in 2021 in order to like start afresh with a franchise. So um, I, I found the whole thing like very Manfredi. Um, and isn't there a solution? Like I understand you can't say no one can do it, but isn't there like we're not going to encourage it? We're not going to play the song. Right. Like, we're not going to do this. Like you're not going to stop people from doing it. You know, people at a certain level can do what they want if they buy a ticket at a certain level. Um, But just don't make it part of what you are providing. Yeah, like they – I think that we can acknowledge that um, the enforcement task for Atlanta is appreciably different and in some ways more difficult than it was in, say, Cleveland. Because when Cleveland – redid some of their policies, were moving toward changing the name, got rid of Chief Wahoo as the the um, main logo. You know, if a Cleveland fan showed up to Progressive Field in red face, they would just say, you can't come in dressed like that. Like, we're not, right, right, you can't right. do this here. I think that it is, um, it is a different challenge to say to a ballpark full of people who are used to doing the chop, you know, you're not going to kick them all out. Like, Maybe that's what they should do, but that isn't likely what they would do to sort of change things. But they can stop playing the, the song, the stop song. playing the song, and encouraging it, and it would be it would be gone in 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 a month. Or or maybe it wouldn't be. But then you're at least saying like we as a franchise recognize that this isn't right, and in much the same way that we wouldn't tolerate a fan, you know, hurling racial slurs at a player or another fan. Mm. This is against our stated policy, right? So that you at least have a mechanism by which you can say, you can take action and say, you know, you've, you can't do that. You've been warned three times, you're out of here. Or whatever they, whatever they end up doing, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it draws a clear boundary for them as a franchise between what they view to be acceptable behavior in the ballpark versus not acceptable behavior. And, you know, there's precedent for MLB as a league stepping in in moments like this and saying, if you don't change how you're doing this, you're going to suffer consequences. We'll take the All-Star right. game away or whatever, right? Financial consequences. So it's not as if, you know, if Manfred had decided, no, this is this is the line we're going to draw. Like, we have listened to people in the last year. We've listened to literally one of the employees of our own league who said that this created an uncomfortable environment for him at work. Right. Like, it's not as if there haven't been players who have come out and said, like, this is no good. Like, Ryan Helsley did that three years ago. Like, right. it's not in the, the ancient past. Right. Right. Um, so they could say, you know, we understand that this was the tradition, 
But it is time for a new tradition here because this doesn't fit with how we want to welcome people to the ballpark and how we want to treat other people in our community. And do you, you, know, do you think the name should change too? I I think that it should because like if nothing else, it sounds like the indigenous groups that are organizing around this would like it to change. That's good enough um, for me. And that yeah, that's good enough for me too. I you know I don't um I don't really see a reason to push back on that especially because they could just be the atlanta hammers right exactly <laughs> that would be so great like you're you're honoring one of not only one of your franchise icons but one of the game's icons you're and everyone can bring a hammer instead of a tomahawk and they can go back and forth with their arm to a different song right or or whatever right instead like of it... playing that song they'll play if i had a hammer and everyone can hold the hammer like they hold the tomahawk and just go back and forth and it'll be just like before but a different song and a different tool in their hand if we could get an entire ballpark of fans in atlanta to to like vibe out to if i had a hammer that would be <laughs> the fucking best kevin <laughs> that um, would be incredible it would, yeah I, that's a free idea if you're listening yeah you work in the atlanta Braves marketing department that is a free idea and i release it to you in right. fullness and perpetuity right um and, yeah so i wish that he had like you know i get that it is a i get that it is a business and he is motivated by profit maximization but it just would be nice if baseball would be about more than money more of the time because then when they <laughs> you know what i mean like and they have dipped they oh have, silly silly right but they have dipped their toe into this water before and when they have done that it has been largely for their own benefit right whether it's reputationally or otherwise mm -hmm. so it would be nice it's just very easy to be able to say you know this isn't this doesn't fly. We're we're moving on from this, and right. we'll sell a bunch more merch. And you know, you're gonna have a lot of uncomfortable in ballpark confrontations, but that's what you need to do to put this kind of history behind you. And I think it's it would be meaningful to a lot of people if they made an effort to do that. So we should do it. Um, in addition, during <clears throat> during the press conference, um, Rob sat next to Tony Clark. Um, they did not come to blows um, and talked about they both kind of gave. Uh, it was interesting. I thought they were both kind of positive. If they want to come to an agreement. And I'm sure they both do. It's just what the form of that agreement looks like that's going to be the problem. And um, it's just kind of a reminder that this is coming. And I honestly, I feel a little more optimistic. I'm still pessimistic, but I guess I'm less pessimistic than I was three months ago about this whole thing. Mm hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it's real possible that we will see, and this is something we have seen before in baseball living negotiations. I think it's possible that you'll see an extension, um, right. where they're going, Hey, it's coming up. We're talking. We like the direction it's going. We're just going to extend this out three weeks and see where we end up. And so, um, like maybe if, if and then if things go south, maybe you'll have a lockout like on January 1st instead of December 1st. Um, that's, I, I, I still think there's going to be at some point, I still think the rubber's going to the road and. Something drastic is going to happen, but I feel yeah. better about this working out in, on some level um, than I did before. Yeah, I think that it is likely that we will not reach an agreement by December 1st. I could definitely see them doing something like an extension like you just said. I also um, imagine that we will be in a 
lockout, whether that is a formal one or not, I don't imagine that we will have an actual work stoppage. Like, I don't really see this you in danger. Well, you, you think on Valentine's Day we're all going to have people showing up for their physicals in Florida? Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine that um, while we will have a contentious negotiation, I think it's going to be the kind of thing where it's like it looks very bad and very fraught for two months and then in like 48 hours right we'll have an agreement. exactly um and i just i don't think that either side is particularly interested in endangering the first normal year of gate receipts and schedule that we will have had since 2019 because even this year where we managed to have a full calendar like it was not normal from an attendance perspective um and for some for some franchises depending on how seriously the locality was taking covid like for an extended period you know oh yeah for sure and it's, um, it, and there has been it's been thrown out there and i don't think it's going to happen but people have thrown out the idea of hey can we just extend this for a year and have one damn normal year like right. 2020 was a mess 2021 was not normal because we a lot of us missed the first month two months or half of the year attendance but can we have one normal year so we can yeah. sit down and talk about what normal even is and how we adjust to it. Yeah, I I don't find that likely to happen. No, I just but, know it's been thrown out there, and I don't I don't think it's going to happen either. But I do think that it it sort of points in the in the direction that these negotiations will end up taking, which is that um, there is just too much money at stake for both sides for them to really. Um, entertain something like um, like the strikes we've seen uh, in in years past. So mm-hmm. I think it'll be nasty and uncomfortable at times. I know that there have been some leaks about sort of proposals. I've actually been pleasantly surprised by how little grist we've gotten. Right? Like yeah, I feel so far, like so good. Right? I feel like last summer we heard about every goddamn memo. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> and phone call, and it sucked. It felt terrible because we were. I just remember every day being like, "We're not gonna have baseball," and then there's not gonna be a fan grabs, and then I'm gonna have to get a different job. And that sort of negotiating in public, there has been some of it. We certainly have seen some details, and they have not been. And there'll be more of it. And there'll be more of it, but they they have seemed less interested in sort of negotiating in public than I think I anticipated they would be after what happened last summer. So like that is a positive. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think it is. So um so on that note, we'll take a break. The chin music spooktacular will continue. <laughs> with Tisha, I'm sorry, talking about whatever the hell's going on with the Mets. So stick around. The mountains and the sea special to my people and me they're the gifts of infinity if we take care of our own Yeah. God gave it. We've got to save it. 
Back to the podcast. The spooktacular continues as we visit the scariest haunted house in the country. It's in Queens. It's where the Mets play, and they are currently undergoing the absolutely strangest GM search slash president of baseball operations search I've ever seen. And here to talk to us about it. Returning to the podcast is she covers the New York Mets for the New York Daily News. And the New York Daily News recently denied permission for her to talk to the Mets about the president of baseball operations job. It's Disha Thosar. Disha, how are you? <laughs> I'm great. Great intro. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Um, Disha, we're, we've reached the point where um, there have been somewhere between 643 and 1,294 publicly named candidates for this job, none of who are going to get the job or want the job, slash, there's one or the other. Uh, you know, this feels like... You know, as someone who's been close to like at least AGM searches, like this happens, like tons of people get talked about and interviewed and like people suddenly get promoted in baseball. And I say to myself, oh, someone must ask permission on them and they got turned down. They got promoted and all that. kind. But this has been just so damn public where every single name, like if a name shows up in an email or on a, on a whiteboard in someone's office, the world knows about it. What the hell is going on? Yeah, it's pretty bizarre, right? I mean, you're completely right in that we I've heard names that I didn't even know about until this week. And I mean, we're among the three of us are probably more connected, right, in the sport than an average fan. So I think that tells just kind of of where this search has been and what it's been like and where it's headed. And um, truthfully, none of us really know what is going on, it seems like. <laughs> um, I don't even know if the Mets know what's going on. I think the the key things that fans especially deserve to know. I mean, they're the paying customers more than, you know, us just, just reporting on it and talking about it, um, is that who is leading this search and what are they looking for in a candidate? Um, and these are two very simple questions that some for some reason have, you know, just not been answered. And I think that is kind of at the core of what's driving all of the this this just craziness around this team right now. Go go ahead, Kevin. Sorry. No, I was gonna. I was gonna say like, there's been some reporting recently. I believe this week that like this is all being done by Steve Cohen and some of Steve's friends, like Governor Chris Christie, and people like that, and like non-baseball people. And have you found? Did you find during the year covering the Mets them to be this um, <laughs> leaky, if you will? 
Uh, yeah, definitely. That's, that's a good, yeah, that's a, that's a good yeah, point. I did. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I did. I noticed honestly, since, um, Cohen was approved last year, it's been actually almost a year now, 11 months that it was in some ways less leaky, um, than it was when the Wilpons were owners, but in many ways more. And that can just be simply explained by, I think, People wanted those sources back that they had in the older regime and in the previous organization and really trying to make new connections with this semi-turnover that happened and all the chaos that happened. And now I think what what has led to most of the leaks is it just shows the dysfunction within the organization itself and that their own employees are, are just displeased and um, nervous and frustrated and all of those emotions about just what has gone down for the past you know two months. And um, if things were all happy and content, then of course it would not be as leaky. So I think as the season has gone on, it has definitely increased. Um, and of course, it's the off season, so so that doesn't surprise me. I I imagine the last two months have been a problem, but the the year before that, I can't imagine was um, particularly fun for Mets employees to navigate. And a lot of that has come down to a number of very public, very embarrassing um, sort of testaments against the culture that has been cultivated within that organization. And I'm curious what your sense is in terms of how. And the answer might be that we don't know, which is its own problem, but sort of how the the balance is being struck between bringing in folks who can advance the organization from a culture perspective, right, trying to cultivate a place where you don't end up um, with the kinds of harassment issues that have been front and center over the last year um, versus advancing it from a baseball perspective and sort of bringing the the organization forward so that it can be competitive on the field. How how are those things sort of working either together or cross purposes with one another as they're thinking about their next their next leader? Um, at least I think my answer definitely generally is I don't know, but I think just to speculate on it, um, from what I've seen, I don't think those two things are working in tandem. Um, I think the baseball aspect of it is coming first and then it's like, oh yeah, right. We got under hot fire for all of this that went down in the last year. Let's just, you know, do a vetting and, and make sure that they're, they're cleared. And I think of course, in that way, there's going to be culture issues that still exist. I think um, you do have to give Steve Cohen credit for even wanting to overturn some of the culture problems. I think it is a situation where you can say the right things and, and it just gets swept under the rug. Um, but he did hire this law firm and over the last season and um, there were some hire firings that came of that internally. Um, again, I think the problem with all of this is they're not being upfront about it. And I think with all of the turmoil and all of the change that has gone down in the last year, um, the one thing that I would have respected if Steve Cohen had done was be more public. And um, he just is not. I mean, regardless of, you know, whatever he wants to say on Twitter, that's all fine and well, but I don't count that as being accountable and, and public. And I think um, even if they are doing all the right things behind the scenes, um, we just don't know about it. And so I think in that way, it kind of leads to some speculation as to are there even changes being made, like you said, on both fronts of the yeah. culture within the organization and, and on the field. When you when you say public, are you, are you saying like the, the media, like you just don't have access to Cohen? Um, yeah, Cohen definitely has his ways, I think, of reaching out to reporters. He like stumbled in, in D.C. One time he made this random appearance when the Mets were playing the Nationals and no one even knew, you know, that was happening. But from his press conference in November 
last November to that random appearance in DC, he has not spoken to reporters. Um, so yeah, the, and, and I remember, you know, when he had his big press conference last year, he's like, I'm going to be completely different from the Wilpons. Um, I'll be, you know, more accountable. I'll be here. Fans can reach out to me. And it's like, you know, of course, over the season he was until even with fans, I think there was this sort of connection that he made. Um, but frankly, he's not showing up when it matters, which is in these last few weeks when when the Mets are coming off like a complete clown show and he's almost letting it happen, which has that narrative even being out there um, has surprised me that he's allowed that to happen, because to me, he's always come off as, you know, this control freak. He's so successful. He needs um, the, the thing that the example that I use that gave that away for me was him getting involved in the GameStop stuff and he immediately wanted <laughs> to clear that up on Twitter and it was like oh wow you kind of care about your public image and now it's like months later where are you now <laughs> you know so I think in that way I think he of course uh, including that he hasn't spoken to reporters um, should at least be more accountable with with his paying customers with reporters and, and the general public. I kind of want to talk to you about the narrative of this GM search, you know, in a, that that's become weird, and it's become weird because of of it being just so uh, unintentionally transparent. I guess would be the best way to put it, because it's just so much more public than anyone I've ever seen. But you know, they started like shooting really, really high, and and you know, Theo Epstein, and like that's probably not going to happen. And and like Theo's kind of wind fair if he wants to be the next commissioner. He also has his fingers in all sorts of non baseball things. Um, Billy Bean was always a long shot. You know, they were never going to get permission on on Stearns. But, you know, a good example that happened this week is with Matt Arnold, who is the general manager of the Brewers, one one behind David Stearns. And, you know, all of a sudden his name got attached. It got out there before permission was even granted. And then the Brewers did what a lot of teams do when permission is asked for someone. And they go, hey, we'll give you an extension and don't take it. And he said, okay. And, but with all these things happening, it's become this narrative of no one wants this job. And I still think it's, you know, there's only 30 of these jobs. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it pays well above average for this job. It's the Met. I, I still think there's probably plenty of people who want this job or am I wrong? No, it's, it's definitely perplexing. I think I would have said maybe before this week, I would not have bought that. I don't, I would not have bought this idea that no one wants this job. Um, it is of course, super attractive like you said, New York, is there's only one out of 30. Uh, Cohen is obviously willing to pay whatever this person wants. Um, but you do have to take into account, and I think kind of the chaos that even happened of this week of these random names popping up and being denied permission and then the, the Chris Christie thing, and it's like, who is he even relying on? Um, I think even when you just consider the public image of the Mets and everything that went down last year just from a human perspective of the pandemic the last two years now, it's like, I think people have realized what matters most to them in life and it's this isn't it you know like coming to the Mets is not the challenge maybe that most people are seeking um, at this time regardless of the promotion regardless of the money um, I think maybe perspective has changed for people just because simply of everything that has happened in the last two years and of course there are still people that would want this job for the reasons that you just said but I do wonder how much of that is a factor when people consider what they're trying to do with their lives, you know, let alone <laughs> just a, just a single paycheck. We're all trying to figure out what we're doing with our lives. Exactly. Um, how much does Sandy Alderson do you think factor into the the sort of um, delay in them being able to fill this role? Either his um, 
the way that he has been involved or not involved with the process itself and also the perception of him within the industry. Yeah, I think Sandy Alderson definitely, and from what I've heard and from people involved too, it has a lot to do with it. And I think it's interesting that he's still here because he's just been kind of striking out one after another for this past season, even in a public image way when he had those comments last year about wanting to go after Trevor Bauer, um, then with the harassment, and I kind of went after him for that because he didn't have a great answer of how exactly they're going to do background checks better and like what women are they going to use to kind of even make that. But, but regardless of all that, I think now the worry that people have when they're debating whether or not they should come to the Mets is that power structure. And if they're going to report to Sandy Alderson or, or are they going to have the opportunity to do their own thing? And from what I've heard within the Mets, it's Definitely not going to be as easy of just giving up the control. Even Alderson has said himself he wants to eventually move back on the business side and he doesn't want to really, uh, if he needs to, he'll guide a younger GM into fitting into that role, but he doesn't want to stay there long term. And all of that is very blurry. And I think even when a candidate is interviewed, it's blurry. It's like, what is going on here? And then you throw in the aspect of his son, who also works um, within the Mets right. organization, is the assistant GM. Um, that is coming up as an issue for both people internally that already work there, of that power structure between son and dad, and people that are debating whether they, they should even be considered, but whether they should throw their name um, into the ring. Because it just, it, we don't even know. You know, they, the Mets have not been upfront about what exactly is the plan with his son. If that's an issue, is it is that son going to overstep whoever is eventually the president of aspirations or the GM and just report directly to his dad? Right. Um, you know, there's obviously an issue, and I think there are so many red flags here that the easiest solution is just to remove, you know, Alderson from that date the operation side if he strictly wants to work on the business side and that's what he was hired to do by cohen um then there has to be a clear line there especially when they're trying to interview and hire someone i i get back to cohen for a second um i, I have spoken to one of the 83 people who is not get not going to be the next president of baseball for the mets and um the way it was put to me and i i, I kind of really appreciate this is like is is I don't know if this. I don't know if Cohen would be the best owner in the world to work with or the worst, but I'm pretty sure it's one of those two and not something in the middle. Um, like, do you think Cohen's? Let's forget about reality for a second. But but the 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 perception of Cohen outside the Mets among people who work for twenty other teams who might be potential candidates is negatively impacting the search. Um, just based off Cohen alone, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's I your boss. I mean, if you get this job, that's your boss. Yeah, I think from from a completely outside perspective, who maybe has never someone spoken to Steve Cohen, I think it is of course a worry. I mean, this guy from the outside just looks like a loose cannon. Like he does what he wants. He clearly can maybe get ticked off one day, and then you're like, oh yeah, let's let's be okay with one thing the next. I think that's kind of what you're setting up for and for that to be someone in your boss obviously is is not great but i think from what i've heard with people that have maybe had this image before speaking to him and then after meeting him um that perception changes and and even for francisco lindor was one of them who said for better or for worse for better um lindor is actually one of the people that has said consistently you know i've asked him even just one-on-one like what does he think of these tweets 
And then what do you think of the person, Steve Cohen? And, and he's always like, it just doesn't have one to do with the other. Um, and I think that's interesting. And I think I would be able to comment on it more if I even had, if, if Steve Cohen had a more of a relationship with reporters. And I, again, I think that's what he should be kind of striving toward to calm down all this, all this media narrative. Um, but I do think that from what I've heard about people that work with him internally, um, the perception changes for better once once they meet him. But again, like then there's nothing to calm down the the chaos that's surrounding his image, right? And um, mm -hmm. like I said, I think from an outside perspective, I think he comes off like a loose cannon who just doesn't really care um, one way or the other about things. And of course, the the these sort of front office roles are not the only roles that are left to be filled within the organization. They have to hire a new manager and they have to do some hiring on the coaching staff as well. Are, is your sense that they will sort of stay the course with hiring in the front office first and then um, turn their attention to the field staff? Or do you think that we might get to a point where they um, sort of do these out of sequence? And if they do, what is that do for an incoming GM who doesn't get input into who the manager is going right. to be. Yeah, I think it would be at this point and, you know, October, almost November, a surprise if they flipped that script and started hiring on-field manager, coaching staff and all of that before they tackled the front office. Um, just based on what we saw last year, they waited until December, mid-December to hire Jared Porter as their GM and then the Zach Scott hire followed after. And up until that point, um, Sandy Alderson was running it himself. And I think the Mets internally believe they have a good structure um, based on this Alderson, his son, um, another assistant GM, and, and some of the um, analysts that they've hired in this last year. So this is a, another reason for why I think it, they're having a hard time even finding someone because whoever wants to come in is going to want to turn over things for him or herself. And I think in that way, the Mets are like, oh, well, we like these people and they've worked for us. Look how far we've gotten. You know, it, it's it, there's a, a sense of delusion going on there for sure. So I think in that way, they're they're happy to wait, right? Like they're from what I've seen from them, they're in no rush. They don't think they needed a, a manager yesterday. They don't think they needed a president of operations yesterday. Um, I think they're going to ride this out. They have their man Alderson until that moment, and then so be it. If they can't hire a manager until January, they can, you know I think that's that's kind of the flow that they're on. I would be surprised. And if they, for, to me, a, a sign that they're sticking with the current structure would be that they hired, you started hiring on field personnel like that. Um, I think in that way, then it's like, okay, well, we're, this is what you can kind of expect for the next year. What do you think the chances of that are in the sense, like, what do you, what do you think the chances are, like, we get the spring train, the Mets have not made a, a, a top of the baseball operations hire? Um, as of now, I would say it's not, it's definitely more than 50-50. I think we can see, I mean, Zach Scott kind of, it's funny, like lurks right in the background. It's like, he, he like would want another chance. That's like what I've heard um, of coming back and like proving himself again and like not messing up and being responsible this time and like all of that, right? And I think, of course, all of that depends on how his trial goes and he still has a trial in December, um, which is why I still think this is, this is why nothing is really going to make sense with their structure until even his stuff is figured out. Um, so if it is even a repeat 
thing happening. I can see Zach Scott coming back if they keep striking out with hiring a, another executive. I know Steve Cohen really likes Zach Scott. At least he did before before that arrest. And, um, you know, Zach Scott and Sandy Alderson seem to have a, a good relationship. So I think if these, these whiffs sort of keep happening and the narrative keeps stri- tumbling down and they want to get rid of this idea that they're a clown show and they're striking out with everyone, then... Um, I think there's a definitely more than 50-50 chance that we can see a repeat. If that happens, what do you, um, or if they don't necessarily bring him back, but say they're going to take their time with the search and we don't have, um, they don't have a, a person named uh, by the time we're on the back half of the CBA negotiations, what does that do for them in terms of how they approach the offseason and sort of um, filling some of the holes that they have on their roster. Obviously, they've spent money during Cohen's regime, but they have needs that they're going to have to sort out, um, whether it's extending players they already have or filling some of their holes in free agency. Yeah, I think we're already looking at those major decisions are going to be be put on Alderson's shoulders. There's major decisions coming up, you know, within the next two weeks of qualifying offers, um, high profile free agents and Javi Baez and Marcus Stroman, those decisions have to be made sooner rather than later. Um, so I think, of course, how that's not the only thing, but those are the upcoming things that I'm already in my head, like, okay, this is, Alderson's going to be doing this and his, and his staff that consists of his son and, and another assistant GM and, and these people that he likes. Like, I think that's, that's already them, right? Unless they hire someone like right after the world series ends. And I think in terms of how they'll manage the roster change, um, Alderson said the right things about what needs to change about this roster. Um, so they're not, you know, delusional in the sense of what the product that everyone saw this past year was a good product no they know it was awful I think Alderson had a good quote in saying that the the young core of the Mets is eroding and it's true because the core always used to be Conforto, Nimmo, um, Dominic Smith, Jeff McNeil now these guys are all in their almost entering their 30s Um, so changes have to be made and I think any any outside individual that was going to come into this organization would fall on those those same um, answers almost because we can see them you know if that's usually how it works at least for me like if I can figure out what needs to change it's like um, but then it it becomes the trust factor of do you trust them to make the right moves and and how do you know that this is a person that's going to make something that will be successful. Um, and of course, that justifiably, it's fair to question all of those decisions as as they happen and afterward. Yeah, like, like three years ago, probably, I mean, Sandy Alderson was one of the more respected names in the game in terms of front office people. You know, Guy Billy Bean talked about as a mentor. Um, and and with, with all that has happened, like how much has his reputation taken a hit? Oh, yeah, huge hit. I mean, I, I'm... I, I talked to some, you know, just older people in the industry who've known him for all this time, older reporters who've who've known him longer than I have, and and even they just don't or un, they don't understand what he's done this past year or, or what he's trying to do or if he's in over his head and if he even knows he's in over his head with with being in a day to day handling operations position. And I think that's kind of where just his reputation starts, if not even his you know, close friends are, are capable of backing him. And not that, you know, I know Billy Bean and, and uh, Sandy Alderson have a strong 
relationship um, uh, off the field maybe, but I think it would have really helped his reputation, say Alderson's, if Bean had come over to the Mets. Mm. And I think his reputation only took another hit um, when Bean was like, you know what, no, I'm good in Oakland. I'm not even going to do this big move and big challenge for for one of my closest friends or in the industry. Um, so I think it, from what I've heard definitely over the past year, it's it's taken a huge hit and I think it's for for all of the reasons right now I, I can't even remember them dating back to when he was hired last november but just in in demeanor alone i remember his first press conference he was so happy bubbly joyful like no, no one that had worked around the mets in his previous tenure had ever seen him like that and now it's like this past september in, in the mets post-mortem it was like back to the dreary like depressing <laughs> vibes and it's yeah. like Oh man, like you know, it just in a snap that 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 bubble was was over pretty quickly. So, if you had to make a prediction, about no, 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 it, you have to make a prediction <laughs> <laughs> about about where they go from here. Um, and you don't have to name a particular person. I have no, a no, you have to name a particular person. <laughs> haven't. I have a feeling that whoever they end up hiring is someone we, uh, or at least that most fans will perhaps be unfamiliar with, but. Where where do you think this ends up going, both in terms of the, the profile that they hire, uh, sort of generally understood, and when they end up being able to like have the press conference to say, this is our person? Right. Um, I think if I was to predict, it's just their, the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again. I do see them repeating what happened last year in that taking their time with this search. And we'll see a press conference in December with sort of a no name, like you said, to fans. And um, even, I mean, I'll be Googling him or, or her, like, what, where did this person, you know, what is the background and all of that. But um, at least that's my prediction of right now, it seems like they're digging at the bottom of the barrel, right? They're going across the list of 30 MLB names. Like, oh, this is a GM, you know, let's call him up. This is another GM. Okay, let's. And then after that, it's, oh, let's go to the assistant GM pool. Like, if that's how this process is going, then <laughs> then it's going to be some no name that, that really we don't even we've never heard of what I would want to happen. Um, I, I think, and he was from what I've heard lately is that he no longer wants the gig, but Brian Sabian, um, yeah. was, was really hyped and excited for, for this challenge of, of taking on, taking it on New York just from the outside, um, when he knew there was an opening. And, um, I think, you know, over the past week, everything that went down, no, they still had not even contacted him. Um, and it, it was just there, people were saying he was kind of offended from that and, um, things like that. So he, it sounds like is, is out anyway, not that he was in because the Mets seemed like they were not interested, but I think that would have, that was a home run. I mean, and they, they could have done that a week ago or, or even prior if they had, you know, just contact started this, this process in September when kind of, we expected them to, instead of waiting in October. Cause I, I read, I think it was in the athletic that, um, Tim Britton and, and Britt Gurley wrote that, um, Cohen went on vacation to Europe in, in October. And it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> if you, if, if you're the one handling the search, you know, so that, that tells me like, you know, they're, they're taking their time and, and they're happy with it. So, um, those are my predictions if they answer your question in a roundabout way. <laughs> well, Deesha, I want to thank you for joining us and discussing this situation. If you want to follow Deesha on Twitter or at her and let you let her know that you have removed yourself for consideration for the Mets President <laughs> Baseball Operations Shop, she is at Deesha Thosar, D-E-E-S-H-A-T-H-O-S-A-R. Deesha, will you be in the New York Halloween Parade and or attending? <laughs> 
Oh no, I am not. I'm staying home with my cat. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> What's the cat's name? Mango. He's an orange tabby. Well, maybe we'll have Mango on the podcast. Yeah. One day. <laughs> He'd love it. He walks across my laptop all the time anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Disha. Of course. Thanks for having me, guys.
Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks to Disha for coming on the podcast spooktacular. Talk about the Mets, the New York Mets. I just, I've, I've always wanted to have a spooktacular. It's just been a goal in life. Are so you, I'm doing it now. Are you a Halloween decorator? Do you decorate for the holiday? My wife puts has certainly put some Halloween things up, but no, I, so, it's nothing I would ever get to. But she she certainly makes the house a little spoo spoo spookier. Spooky, yeah. yeah. I I'm I like Halloween. It's one of my. It's a great one because yeah, it's great. No, yeah, there's no like the two best holidays are, are Halloween. There's nothing weird attached to it, and then Thanksgiving because it's just about eating. Like there's nothing yeah. else attached to it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm into I'm into the food part. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about music. You're listening to the songs of Winterhawk. This is an amazing band with an amazing story. Um, these are 40-year-old songs. Um, Winterhawk was a hard rock, almost heavy metal band, uh, late 70s, early 80s, formed by four Native Americans. So timely, considering our Braves discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did hard rock songs that had, uh, at times, like tribal beats and lyrical content that... Uh, was representative of their culture Um, and they were kind of incredible and um you know we we play a lot of music from don giovanni records here on the show good friend of the of the show joe steinhart runs don giovanni records and joe found the first winterhawk album in a record store one day because he runs a record company so of course he's a record dork and he found the album and kind of became obsessed with them and um, and like Fat Abba, they actually played the Us Festival on a smaller stage in 1983. Um, during their career there on the West Coast, they opened for everyone from like Tina Turner to Van Halen to oh, Motley cool. Crue. They opened for Metallica before Metallica was a thing. Um, like they were a real band and they were like totally forgotten about. And then like Joe got really into them. And then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden Joe, as somebody who runs a record company, had less to do. Like bands were not touring. Right. Um, and, and at the same time, even, you know, a lot of recording studios were closed and things like that. And Joe suddenly made an effort and, and, and found them or found one of the members and got in touch with them um, and, and made arrangements to get the rights to redistribute the recording. So they, they have two albums in, in, in their career. Um, uh, Electric Warriors was their first. Their next was Dog Soldiers. They have both been re-released by Don Giuliani Records. You can get they've, they've never been on CD ever. Um, and even like original pressings go for like a grand at this point. Oh, wow. So you can go get like now digital slash CD stuff. Go to Don Giovanni Records. This is kind of amazing stuff that there's nothing like it and nothing since. So so Winterhawk. And thanks to Joe for letting us play Winterhawk on the podcast this week. Are you ready for emails? Sure. Let's do it. We get emails. And you can send us emails. They go to chinmusic at fangrass.com. And once again, I do not have an intern who reads my emails. I read my emails. There was someone who thought that, like that I actually had the luxury of an intern to read my email. I think that people, um, and it is flattering that they think this. <laughs> they think everything's bigger than it is. I, yeah. yeah, I think that they um, they think that Fangraphs is like a much bigger operation than we really are. <laughs> yeah, multi- multinational corporation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so send your emails to musicfangraphs.com. And if you're one of those people who listens to us in the Apple world, uh, rate and review the podcast. It helps us. I've never been really accurately explained how, but do it anyway. First email comes from John, and John says, "Hey Sarge, do you are you, are you have no awareness of the Sarge thing? Do you?" Mm-mm. Um, real quick, this is this is from the the my show from over a decade ago. Um, oh yeah, okay. When my my 
absolutely glorious and 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 late mother was on and she uh, uh if i was not named kevin i was going to be named sergeant oh interesting after sergeant shriver <laughs> um so that's a little tidbit for you john says hey sarge uh what is baseball major league baseball or teams doing to expand the game of baseball across borders are there teams doing expansion work in europe does mlb have academies in china I remember a while back, a team was working to transform players from cricket to baseball. Is anything like that still happening? What kind of outside-the-box thing are teams doing these days to find players in new places? Or is the focus on finding players to to slip through the cracks like the Astros signing older pitchers in the Dominican? Um, It's funny that you say this because I was thinking about it the other day, and there was a time when baseball was doing a lot, and they gave up. Yeah. and I, it's kind of, I kind of get it. Um, there was a time when you know most teams had a scout in Europe, and there was this whole MLB Europe group, and they kind of just fold up because they they just like after a few years they went, there's no way we're gonna make any sort of dent in Europe with soccer. Yeah, like, there's just not gonna happen. Um, I did a project very early during my time with the Astros where we actually looked at cricket players. Um, and thought about the best cricket players. I mentioned this before. And then we learned that, like, the super famous best cricket players literally make more money a year than Mike Trout. Right. <laughs> it's like, hey, you want to give that up and go to Corpus Christi? Learn right, how to play right. a new sport? Good time. Good time. Yeah. try it. Great Vietnamese food. Uh, you know, and it, that's not going to happen. Um, there, MLB does have, like, a weird um, relationship with, like, the, the, the Chinese sports academies, whatever you want to call those. Yeah. Um, I know a really smart baseball person who's convinced that at some point in the next decade or two, there will be some sort of Yao Ming situation. All of a sudden, there'll be some like six, seven Chinese kid throwing 103. Um, and, but it won't become like a, a place where you get tons of players, but there'll be there'll be something weird. Um, and we'll see. But for the most part, like there was like a push. And I think MLB is like it's the return investment is just nil. Yeah. I mean, it just would require the 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 resources that you have to put in. And the amount of time you have to spend, like that is not a, that's not a five-year project, right? To realize actual prospects from those markets is a decades-long investment, which isn't to say that there won't be odd, um, you know, guys who emerge from there. Like there are players from Europe who sign. Yeah, uh, I mean, Max Kepler, but that's a very unique story. His mom's American, was was a ballet dancer. Right. It sounds like there needs to be like a particular nexus of of familial life experiences to sort of encourage those guys to pursue baseball at a young age. And so I imagine it will um, yield uh, a couple of of prospects, you know, every couple of years. But um, it doesn't seem like without really, really meaningful investment that you are likely to sort of create new baseball hotbeds, which isn't to say that there aren't. It, it's too bad, right? Because there are definitely human beings who live in those countries sure, who could sure. end up being incredible baseball players. But um, making making the case for them to commit to baseball versus other sports and then, like you said, to like – Go live in Lubbock or wherever right. <laughs> um, and not make very much money and, um, you know, relative to w- other athletic endeavors that they could potentially be pursuing um, that are more sort of resonant already within, you know, the countries they live in. It's just it's too bad. If I was going to name one place um, that you might see more players come from in the next 20 years, I would call I would say Brazil. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah there have been more signings out of Brazil. Um, the game does have some traction in the northern part of the country that borders with Venezuela. 
um you know the whole southern 80 percent is is understandably soccer obsessed um but the northern 20 percent or so of brazil um is more baseball there it's, it's more it's, it's closer to you know culturally in a lot of ways to venezuela than it is to to mainland brazil and so yeah, there ha- we have seen players coming from Brazil. There have been um, some—I don't want to call it academies—but there's some there's some facilities set up in, in northern yeah. Brazil right now. And um, I, I, there are people who think that's a, that's the next kind of that's the next interesting place. Yeah, so it could be Brazil. Um, our next email comes from Alan, and Alan has a Q and A for us. Uh, Alan says, "I consider myself to be a fairly knowledgeable baseball fan." We do as well. We can all have an ego. That's cool. Uh, yet the mechanics involving a potential work stoppage confuse me. To confuse us as well. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, would it be possible to address a few questions? Sure. Let's go. This all assumes that the work stoppage becomes reality on December two. So we're going to assume that things go uh, poorly, and on December first, uh, when there is when the agreement expires, that the owners lock the players out. Um, real quick before I say, it, if, if the if the thing expires, the owners are going to lock up the players. It is not a an act of aggression in terms of the negotiation. It is actually kind of just a legal hurdle they have to jump over. Um, first question, can teams make deals like trades, 40-man roster assignments, Rule 5, minor league free agents during the lockout? Mostly no. Mostly no, but it kind of depends, right? You can like, sign a minor league free agent if it's not on the 40-man. Well, and they they can make a decision to sort of formally stop the market, right? They don't have to make that choice. They likely I think they actually do have to make that choice. I think oh. if there's a lockout, that's forced. Okay. Like you can't like because there's no CBA that the that the contracts are subject to. Gotcha. Um, and even if they didn't do that, like you're not going to see teams signing new guys or making trades without an understanding of the economic system that they're signing them into. Right. Right. There will be a freeze on on things, but again, minorly free agents will be able to sign. Um, sure. And on the forty man, international players will be allowed to sign. I was told by a longtime exec that he was sure that in one of the work stoppages, maybe between eighty and eighty one, that they actually that they strangely had a rule five draft, which was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard. Um, huh. But uh, so we'll see. But yeah. for the most part, like big, you know, yeah, big headline making deals are just simply not going to happen during right. a lockout. Um, next question: What about free agents? Can they negotiate with potential teams? If no is the answer again, are there penalties if they do? Mm-hmm. Um, technically, no. I'm sure conversations will happen yeah. that don't involve offers and or counter offers, where like they will t- agents and teams will talk and they'll say, "Yeah, our guy's looking for for five years," and you know he sees himself a lot like player X. You won't say a number, and you certainly won't make an offer because that will be a problem. Right. But I'm sure like those kind of feel out setup conversations which happen a lot in the gm meetings maybe i'll write about those at some point um, yeah a lot of fun and i used to do a lot of those um those kind of things will happen but you can't get into any sort of offer situation right yeah um three if a lockout is pending can we assume that there will be an initial frenzy to get deals done by december 1st especially free agents or will players wait things out does a new cba change the landscape for free agency um it won't change like who is that no CBA change is going to change who becomes a free agent this offseason. That'll right. all get kind of grandfathered. But um, everyone I've talked to with teams are very much playing it by ear. Like they don't know yeah. if there's going to be a frenzy or not. They're like, we don't know yet. We're like, we're not sure how we're going to behave yet. We like, we need to get kind of more guidance from Major League Baseball on what's going on. I would I would be surprised if we saw a flurry of activity because I, would be shocked. Yeah. I think that um, 
especially for the guys at the top of the market who are looking to sign big deals, both in terms of the sort of um, raw amount of money involved and the and the number of years, um, that what we have seen from those contracts in recent off-seasons, independent of a CBA negotiation, is that they are slow developing because you are trying to get a very good sense of what your potential market is and then maximizing that market. And so I, I think that that tends to take time on the player and agent side. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't imagine that four weeks is going to be sufficient for like, you know, for Scott Boris to feel like he has the best offer that he can possibly get for his dudes for Right, especially for a guy like Boris who loves waiting out the market. Right. He's the most patient agent in baseball. Yeah, and so I can't imagine that um, given the compressed timeline that we will see um, see a lot of guys, at least at the, the top end of the market. Now, would I be surprised if some of the you know, the next tier or two down from that um, decided that, hey, I have something I can live with for a year. Um, I'm going to sign a one-year deal and kind of try again next time. Could I see some of those contracts coming about? I Yeah, I think that, yeah. that we'll see some of that stuff where a guy might just be kind of nervous about what the market will bear beyond that. But I think that if there's any... Um, any question about how many games we're going to get next year and that's what the revenue picture is going to look like that um it seems unlikely that teams will want to sort of do their big outlays before the cba is finalized and i think that agents are going to say we're better off waiting until the spring which means that um our spring is going to be boring and then very busy (laughs) yeah and uh, i think a good indication will actually come very soon um once the world series is over we enter what's called the quiet period Right. Um, and during the quiet period, teams can talk to their own free agents. They do get an, an exclusive window for seven days. Yeah. And you, when we, I think seeing if, if a lot of things happen during the quiet period, I think then we will have some indication of kind of how nervous the players are, not the union, but the players themselves. Right. Um, about what's going on. Yeah. Um, the last question about odds. We talked about odds early on uh, in segment one. Um, we'll get to our final email. It comes from James. Take a deep breath, Meg. Okay. James says, uh, take a deep breath, everybody. Dave James says, I am a Cardinals fan. And I think that Jeff Luno never really got proper credit for his contributions to the 2011 championship team. As we all know, he went on to build a great Houston Astros that will be remembered for its greatness as well as controversy. Luno has taken the brunt of the blame for the Astros science-stealing scandal for what is perceived as the culture he built there despite the ambiguity of whether he was directly involved or not. Hearing the Mets targeting high-profile baseball people like Theo Epstein and Billy Bean, it begs the question of why not Luno, who has a better record of success? Luno clearly has made mistakes, but it doesn't he deserve a second chance? Do you think Luno will ever work in baseball again? And if not, should he be given the opportunity? I want to use this question to make a really to make a point, and I used similar phrasing in a question with Disa, which I I, 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 I let's I want to get away from right around and just talk about the reality of something, okay? Okay. This is just pure reality talk. Um, AJ Hinch was in the clubhouse while all this happened. He apologized for it. I, I, he's been genu- I, I believe personal opinion, genuinely contrite about it. Yeah. And he is he is now the manager of the Detroit Tigers. Alex Cora was in the clubhouse while this happened. He's apologized for it. He is a, a key part of 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 the scheme. He is now the manager of the Boston Red Sox. 
Again, not making a more. I'm simply stating a fact right now. Sure. If Jeff Luno apologized for it, he would be up for jobs. And the fact that he has it is surprises me because he should. And um, the other thing I, I, I want to bring up real quick is just um, you know the ambiguity of whether he was directly involved or not. I'm going to be totally honest with everybody here. I have no idea if Jeff knew or not, and I also don't think the question matters. Um, I think the real answer that you get here is that Jeff Luna, it happened under his watch. Right. And so whether he knew or not, it's absolutely, it, it's irrelevant. It happened right. under his watch. And so he needs to take some responsibility for it. But I do think for better or for worse, if he apologized for it, he would be in much better shape. But, you know, we talked about the Mets PR disaster. Like they're not going to hire, a, 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 oh a, they're not going to hire somebody who, who's going to come with all sorts of PR problems, <laughs> even if they thought Jeff would do a good job. I'm just imagining what Twitter can would you be imagine? like that day. Can no, you I think imagine? that it, we could, I would, we could I would fuel. Clo- I would close my laptop and find the the, yeah. the the furthest away woods to walk into. Yeah, um, we could we could power <laughs> we could power the U.S. for ten years on the takes on that one. I mean, so I will I I will play go uh, the moral fool I guess in in this and say that. Um, well, I think that it's I think it's too late for him to apologize. Right. Right. Like, no, I agree with you. It's timed out. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, he he had the opportunity to do that and elected not to. Um and so I think And that, defiantly elected not to. Oh yeah. And so his his moment um to do that and have it um land at all sincerely is long, long past. Um I think that uh <laughs> I think that the Mets are an organization that need to strike out in a new direction in terms of their internal culture. Um, both that, that is what they owe like to their fans. It is what they owe to the people who already work in that organization. And it's what they owe to people who will work in that organization in the future. And so for me, the thing that's disqualifying and like granted, obviously my perspective on Luna is very different than yours. Um, in in terms of our proximity to him, I don't know that we really disagree about yeah, how unsavory right some there. of those things are. I don't want to imply that you're like Jeff did a great job, um, but um, I think that the stuff that is disqualifying for him actually doesn't have anything to do with the sign stealing, and it's everything else. Mm. Um, and so, it, both in terms of the the Mets job specifically, and then in terms of other organizations contemplating what a hire at that senior of a lot of signals in terms of their organizational values. And I think that when you're at the top, like there is stuff that happens that isn't your fault, but that you do bear responsibility for. Um, and it would be, as you said, one thing if he were contrite. I think that like my external perspective on those three guys who you mentioned is that people like AJ Hinch and Alex Cora, and they think that Luna's an asshole. I think, right? and, I think that is a fair assessment. And so I think that whenever we're making these assessments about sort of second chances and whether or not someone um, deserves to work in the game still, like y- you carry all of your baggage with you. And that includes the stuff directly related to sign stealing. And it also includes, you know, trading for someone with a domestic violence incident and involves mm-hmm the um the perceived organizational cu- culture around sort of the I- insistence on um pursuing efficiency to sort of all other concerns right there's yeah. all of this other stuff that the 
the Astros under his tenure were freighted with. And some of that's his direct responsibility, and some of it maybe is um, a broader organizational posture, but um, he hasn't been particularly contrite about any of it when he's had the opportunity to speak on it publicly. Um, and I think that people within the game kind of look at that guy and they're like, that dude's a dick. I don't want to... It amazes me. It just, it honestly amazed me that that was the, the route he took. Cause like, I, I, like I said, I honestly think if he was contrite about it, like he would get, at least get interviews. Right. And I would, I would, um, that would bum me out. As, because, yeah. And, and I get that. I'm not, and again, like right, I'm not saying for right you're, or wrong. I'm just saying right. how it, that, but you're how right. I think that, I think that when we look at the landscape, like he, um, you know, some of the, uh, decisions that he made would get made in any front office which is an indictment of the way that we you know do this stuff now that's not a pass but it's like that um that a lot of those individual decisions are not unique to him um but i think that when you take them all together and then you couple that with um him as you said being defiant rather than genuinely contrite like that combination of things makes him unhirable now I've been disappointed before. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I'll never say never, but um, I think that. Oh, I it, think he, I think, I don't think he'll work in baseball again. I, I think he probably won't. I, I'm pretty confident he won't, but. I'm not sure he wants to as well. well and, that's the and, other, and he certainly doesn't need to. Well, and that's the other thing. It's like, um, I, I don't remember the, the local houston station i remember he gave an interview like the week of the world series and um in in 20 what what year was that was that last year was that during 2020 yep and i was just like wow you really don't like rob manfred at all do you Mm. um and i don't remember what station that was but um you know he talked about other opportunities in soccer and i was like oh yes go please (laughs) go go ruin something else why don't you (laughs) um so i don't know i i think that um the fact that he hasn't been interviewed at this point is probably a sign that you're right um but like i said i've been disappointed before so so if you want to send emails to the podcast about light or heavy subjects yeah to music at fancraft.com it's time to catch up with meg meg hi what's going on oh you know not a lot (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you're in the middle of postseason coverage yeah uh you have lots of bad hours during postseason coverage um somewhere in, in the next six days the postseason will be over yes do you take a break um not immediately um we we will be rolling out um just because it didn't seem like there was a better time to do them um we will be rolling out our annual uh free agent rankings Mm -hmm. those will go live um the monday after the last possible world series day so i think that's the 8th of november um so that's a project um, I will, I'm sure, find some time to take a couple days off and recharge a bit. It's hard to know when to take vacation. I took two weeks off in August. Right. <laughs> like a normal person does in the middle of the season. It was, took two weeks off, but that was kind of when I had a window. I where talk, August is a good time. Trade deadline's over, just kind of riding out the season. Yeah, it's really nice to only have one deadline. That really, really opened up a, a world of possibilities in terms of me taking days off. <laughs> <laughs> um 
uh, last year I took like 10 days off because I moved to Arizona. And so I was, uh, I was driving down here and then getting, um, you know, a, a pod unpacked and what have you. Um, but yeah, I'll take, I'll probably take a little bit of a breather. I have like, uh, I have a friend's wedding to go to, um, not this coming weekend, but the weekend after. So that'll be nice. You know, Where's we the get, wedding? uh, Northern California. So, oh, okay. so not, not a bad bit of travel. Um, but I have a friend's wedding to go to. There's been a lot of weddings this year because everybody's sort of um, able was able to reschedule stuff. Um, so we'll get to do that. I mean the the volume the volume coming down in terms of how much we have to navigate and as you said, sort of like the bad hours fading away into something more manageable is ends up being kind of a break in and of itself because um, we're gonna you know we'll get the free agent stuff up and then. Um, you know, I think people understand that we're going to be collectively as an industry in sort of a weird holding pattern until, um, the labor stuff gets sorted. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it'll, it it won't take long for me to miss there being baseball every day, but it does, it does allow a little bit of a, of a needed breather. Um, but you know, we, we keep plenty busy in the off season. Jay will, will uh spin up the hall of fame machine in short order and we're about to embark on list season so um there will be plenty to do but it will it'll have a less breakneck pace than um than october does october and march are like days where i can i can pretty reliably say like i'm gonna end up working every day in this month and that doesn't mean i work a full day every day but i'm gonna work at least a couple of hours every day in the month of October. And so being able to like have a Saturday right, is really, it makes a, a really big difference in terms of my um, just general exhaustion level, if nothing else. <laughs> now you, you have a full-time job and more kind of defining the content and, and managing all the traffic and, and, you know, deciding what people are going to see at Fangrass every day. Yeah. Um, you have a really good voice and you write very well. Do you wish you wrote more? Yeah, sure do. <laughs> I sure do. Um, every year I've been like, I will find more time to write. And that hasn't happened. Um, I guess I'm optimistic that it will next year. I don't know why it would be different, but... Um, yeah, it would be nice to, I have this dream of like a piece, like a piece a week, there being a piece a week, but it is, um, it's challenging to, to switch tracks, you know, from editing to writing. Um, and, and I found that to be a barrier. We also just have had long stretches in the last season where it's like been very breakneck. Like July was the was crazy why did we do Mm -hmm. july that way that was dumb we shouldn't have done july the way that we did i mean not us personally we were responding to the schedule we were given but um that was another month where i was like oh i worked every day this month that seems bad so i hope to write more because i like it and people seem to tolerate my bit of weird twee bullshit pretty um (laughs) nicely so um not to go dark here but yeah. let, let, let's 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 talk about a possible darkness that has a good light. Okay. Okay. Let's assume that there is a lockout. Yeah. And it happens on December second, but it's not like destructive to baseball or the business. It, it lasts five six weeks, right? Yeah. Like, what are your thoughts for what we do? Oh, as are like a other, site. Yeah, as a site, other than 
creating sumo graphs. I'm I'm a big fan of theme weeks. I have mm. some theme week ideas um, to help people have a thing to latch on to and, and contemplate. I'm not going to give them away because no, um, no. Cause then they wouldn't be a surprise. And, you know, you never know what's what crafty swipers are out there that might steal our theme weeks um but i'm a big fan of theme weeks and like i said we'll have you know the the hall of fame beat marches on and we'll have a lot of really great prospect coverage um so we will have um plenty to sort of hold us over while we wait for transactions to flow in um it's nice one of the many nice things about us getting a full uh relatively normal season this year is that you know, last year we we were supposed to start in March, and then we kind of had to have a second off season. Right. And I felt like people wrote a lot of really great stuff, and then um, I think struggled in some respects in the off season that actually was like the the true off season to um, to gear themselves up for another. Um, stretch of months where they weren't reacting to news or events on the field, but were, um, you know, sort of, sort of tied to to trying to come up with fun and creative things to do. Which isn't to say that our staff wasn't great and didn't do those things, but I think that it was, it was hard to do two two off seasons in the same year um, because it is just a very different mode of writing and and sort of thinking. And so um, I I like that we had a more normal year because I think we can sort of resume some of the normal beats that we get once we reach mm-hmm. November, even if the um, the transaction news will likely be delayed um, and potentially substantially. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do theme weeks. And, you know, if your listeners have particular things that they're interested in hearing us opine on, like, I'm not above suggestions. Good ideas come from all sorts of places. So... You know, if you have a thing where you're like, I have this question, I don't know how to answer it. I can probably bother someone to answer it for you. It's one of the great things about being an editor. Sometimes I have questions. I'm like, I don't know the answer. And then I'm like, hey, Ben, will you go find out for me? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to give you your job interview question now. Okay. Um, You are the managing editor at Fangrass. Yeah. You are the co-host of a wildly successful podcast that has the word effectively in front of it. Thank you. Um. Well, what do you want to do next? Oh, like in my career? Yeah, where do you want to be in five years? I want to write a book. About what? About baseball. What about baseball? It's a we big have, subject. Yeah, we haven't had a we haven't had like a really um, well. It's been. You a can long keep your idea to yourself. If you want to protect this? Yeah, I, I I'm not gonna um, give like specific topics. Let's just say that I think there's room in the market for like a a, a baseball essay collection. We um, we have had a lot of focus, I think, in the last um, 10, 15 years of baseball publishing on, you know, like there's the genre of book that is helping people to understand uh, analytics and how they interact with the game. Sure. And then there's like the standalone team book where, um, you know, it's like the secret to the to the Los Angeles Dodgers World Series. Extra, extra. It's time for Dodger baseball, right? And it's like that, there's that thread, and I think right. that those um, there are like really great examples of both of those genres that are fun and interesting reads and kind of advance our understanding of the game. Um, but we haven't had as many essay collections, and like I wouldn't, 
not um, compare myself to Roger Angel, but like there, where there's like that that yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of approach, um, which is I think um, conducive to to touching on a lot of different subjects that might be unified by a common theme. And so um, I've had had that idea kind of knocking around in the back of my head for the last couple of years. Um, what exactly that looks like in terms of subjects is the the subject of a very long, at this point long and kind of rambling Google Doc, um, and I think would need to be ironed out, and I would need to be able to take book leave. So that's a yeah. that's a gating factor. But um, I think that in five years from now, I hope I can look back and say that I I wrote a book. Yeah. So you know. I have all this free time, so. and it didn't take me 15 hours to write a 1,200-word game recap, so a book will be fine. That'll yeah, be, you'll be fine. That'll be easy. Yeah, it's like a couple weeks. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> it's time for a moment of culture. Cool. What do you got? Um, well, I, I, I have... Well, I had one thing, and I wanna, I wanna still share that one thing. But then, mm-hmm. because you have made this a spooktacular, I have another yes. thing. Can I do two moments of culture? Of course, you can. Okay, so this one, I, I've only, um, I've only listened to the first episode of this podcast because it is only one episode has been released thus far. But um, Dana Schwartz, who uh, her regular job is hosting um, a. a podcast called noble blood which is about like royals throughout history mm-hmm. um has a new podcast out called uh Haleywood, which is about bruce willis purchasing real estate in Haley, o- idaho and then kind of taking over the town in the 1990s oh, wow. um yeah he he bought a like a 20 acre ranch in this town which i think is is sort of proximate to sun valley but isn't in sun valley okay um and you know he is sort of famously um uh testy when it comes to the press and i think the the spotlight of hollywood has been something that he has tried to shy away from um but in in relocating to this town um i i'm i'm given to understand based on the preview to the podcast that there will be some uh, town Willis conflict um, and so I, only the first episode is out um, so far but it has it's delightful um, what's and it called very, again? Uh, Haleywood I will send you a link to it so that okay. you can link in the in the show notes if you're, you're so inclined um, but so that that is my this week moment of culture but then if I can recommend a, a book that I read earlier this year that I think is um Good for those of you who are um, enjoying the spooky season and want to read something. This is a, a book called Ghostland by Colin Dickey. So it's Ghostland, an American History in Haunted Places. And uh, Dickey is a historian. And uh, he is not here to tell you that like ghosts are real. Um, but he, he goes uh, through some of America's most purportedly haunted places Mm -hmm. and uses that as a lens to think about like what do we what are we really talking about when we're talking about haunting um and ghosts and like what is our sort of desire to cleave to this supernatural idea tell us about american culture and place and it is uh it's a really great read um and very absorbing and uh yeah ghostland i would recommend it if you're if you're uh, 
skeptical but enjoy the spooky season, uh, that's a that's a good one for you to pick up. Meg Rowley, do you believe in ghosts? No, I don't. But I I enjoy I enjoy this time of year and I uh, sure. yeah and like I I liked I liked this book quite a bit it's it's very good he also has another um, book out called the unidentified where he goes through sort of uh, you know conspiracy theories and cryptids and all sorts of stuff and mm. like looks at the um social underpinnings of a lot of those ideas ufos and and what have you and um it is a great read in itself and then um you will read it and think about our larger cultural moment and feel sad but um you'll be you'll be engaged so um i guess i'm just here to promote colin dickey who knew yeah there you go yeah i'm gonna talk about a youtube channel Okay. So I've talked about this in the past. Like often, uh, as as the night comes to an end, at some point we'll say, "Let's just watch a couple of YouTubes before we go to bed," um, and that could be anything from people eating street food to Animal Crossing stuff to people who are bad drivers to sumo news to sure. videos of French people. Who knows what you're going to watch? Um, but one of our subscriptions is a channel that you probably not know about, even though that I I I think they are approaching like somewhere around a million subscribers. And it is Country Life Vlog. And this is uh, a married couple in Azerbaijan who clearly have a lot of land. And it's just videos of them harvesting crops on their land and then cooking. Cool. Um, and it's like we watch a few of these, like just har- we're going to harvest stuff and cook it. There's this, uh, there's like actually a couple um, people in China who we watch who do this. Um, is it is this am- amazing woman uh, named Aziza? Um, her son uh, learned to cook from his mother, and he was a professional chef. And cool. then, and then the pandemic happened, and he lost his job, and he went back there and started filming what they do and making this channel, and it's a massive success. And um, they cook outside constantly. They make their own. At times, they build another, their own oven to cook in. Um, but they're always cooking outside in this huge pan. It's because um, I can't remember um, what the ethnic group that they're a part of. They're, they're, it's, a, it's a Muslim ethnic group there. But like traditionally, they were nomads, so you just cook where you are. Sure. And so they, they make a fire. They put this giant cast iron. It almost looks like a, a, a more shallow wok. It's huge. And she cooks, and they cook. And it's like the most peaceful thing. And this woman is just, I want her to be my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's like just watching them do it is like the most peaceful relaxing it's almost time for bed there's re- there's no talking at all it's just there's the crops here's their animals here's some picking crops look they're making tea oh she's gonna cut that up oh there's the there's the there's the trees there's their cute cat oh they're gonna cut that up it's all going in the pan now and and it, it's like they're like 20 minutes long and they make mostly traditional dishes of their people it's not all sometimes they make lasagna um and it's just kind of amazing uh and it's a very relaxing peaceful chill way to end your evening country life vlog on on youtube that sounds great it's wonderful do you get a sense of does the the way that it's shot convey like the amount of time that doing all of these things yeah you can tell this was a day this was their day yeah yeah, because I think that that's something that, um, you know, like I think about, <laughs> I want to think about the olden times. It's like, um, y- you know, making bread took the whole day. Oh, yeah. 
you know, get like getting the, the 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 elements of your stew together. Like that was that was a full day of work. It's really amazing that we've survived. <laughs> and yet here we are. Here we are. So if you want to chill at the end of the night, Country Life Vlog. I'm going to check that out. Meg, I think we're done here. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks this for doing this. This took way too long. No, it was fine. No, I mean it... to have you as, as the co-host. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm deeply offended. I can't believe it. What an insult. We... <laughs> She it wasn't kept, that I kept is, saying, I don't have time, sorry. She kept saying, I don't have time. Uh, really, it's just because she didn't want to do it. But she kept saying she didn't have time. So if you, if you want to follow Meg on Twitter, um, you go to Meg Growler. And <laughs> we will talk to you next week. And maybe it's going to be a weird one because maybe the World Series will be over and maybe it won't. Yeah, I don't know what to do on my own podcast. So um, when you figure it out, will you let me know so I can plan effectively while? <laughs> I just kind of roll with it and just deal with the fact that it's Thursday and we're podcasting. And we'll have a new co-host. We'll have a new guest. We'll have new music. All that good stuff. So thanks for listening, everybody.
Easy Horse.